Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. All right, we're doing this sermon series on parables called Trickster, uh, Trickster Jesus. And the idea that sometimes we come to the parables, we immediately think we know what we're doing, we think we understand, and we walk away like, that was nice. Um, but the trick, the trickiness of the parables is that it's meant to make you uncomfortable, it's meant to challenge you, it's meant to kind of trip you up a bit and be like, wait a minute, Samaritans can be good? What, the tax collector's the good guy? kind of throws you off, and, and, and today's parable is no different. So before I jump into actually reading the parable, um, some pretty big stuff uh, happened uh, this week. Uh, if you're following the news, this is a, a more of an American uh, sort of, what am I trying to say, current event, uh, but we will talk about the Canadian context in a bit later on. But I wanted to start with this story. Um, Brianna Taylor, you probably heard that name a little bit in the last two years. On March 13th of 2020, she was shot and killed in her own apartment at 26 years old. Um, what happened essentially is that she was asleep, it was after midnight, and the police were executing a search warrant uh, connected to a drug investigation involving Brianna's ex-boyfriend, Jamarcus, whom she hadn't spoken to in years. He'd never lived with her. Absolutely zero reason to believe he would be at her house. Zero connection or affiliation in years. Uh, but seven police officers in plain clothes uh, forced their way into their home. Their warrant allowed for forced entry um, in the middle of the night. Um, essentially, I think what happened is her boyfriend heard someone breaking in and jumped up and yelled, get out of my house, and shot like a warning shot. Um, and then um, the seven police officers released 32 bullets. 32 bullets fired by the police. Uh, six of them hit young Brianna Taylor, and she died. In March 3rd of 2022, um, oh, I have this wrong, March May 3rd of 2022, um, the jurors acquitted the officers involved. And apparently there's been very few charges laid in American history um, for uh, police officers who um, accidentally killed civilians in line of duty. Um, but her mother, Breonna Taylor's mother, here's a name you'll need to remember, Tamika Palmer, fought very hard um, to appeal the acquittal and advocate for justice. The FBI began its own investigation in May of 2020, and on August 4th, so that is three days ago, August 4th, 2022, um, four officers um, whose bullets killed uh, Breonna Taylor were charged. And uh, I suppose, what would we say justice was served? I don't know, Breonna's still not alive, so it doesn't quite satisfy the longing but it was a pretty big moment in the United States. And there's a quote, um, so Tamika Palmer isn't a widow. We're talking about a widow today. She's not a widow, but did you know, Breonna Taylor's father is one of the 2.3 million faceless incarcerated men in the United States. He is serving a 45 year sentence for being caught with marijuana with intention to sell at 19 years old. By 19 years old, he had six children, um, and he has already spent the majority of his adult life, um, the entirety, save for one year, um, in prison. And uh, Tamika Palmer on August 4th, so just a couple days ago, um, stood in front of the courts after the announcement that these uh, police officers would be charged and arrested. Um, she stood up and you know what she said? She said, they said it couldn't and wouldn't be done. 
but they didn't know that I could and I would stand for 874 days. That's how many days since her daughter was killed. 874, she stood, she did not give up, she's advocating, she's protesting, she's grieving out loud, and she said they didn't think I could do it. But her grief and her passion for justice out, uh, outran, outlasted um, a pretty big system that seems to be rigged against people, especially black people who get uh, shot by police officers. That's Tamika Palmer. And I think that's a, a, a powerful uh, story that's happening right now in our world um, that should inform or perhaps uh, influence how we read this parable. So you can go to the next slide. Um, Anna already read it, but it's important. We'll, we'll read it two more times today. Um, this is Jesus speaking in Luke 18. Um, and in Luke, is, you find parables where Jesus kind of plays tricks where he has, you know, the good Samaritan, the good tax collector, like Zacchaeus is the good guy. Like he does this kind of thing where uh, there's more going on here and, and it, it shouldn't be exactly what you expect. But it says, then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city, there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. Um, and I don't, I'm not usually like that preacher that like unpacks the Greek words. Like that's not trendy anymore, I think, in the preaching world. We're told not to do that, I think, in Bible college, anyway. Um, but you should know that this phrase here at the end, um, in verse uh, five, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she will not wear me out. Um, that phrase, wear me out, is a boxing term. It's used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. It's a violent term. Wear me out. It's not like, oh, all her whining and nagging and insert word you, you affiliate with angry women here. Uh, that's not the word. The word is, she will beat me up. She will give me a black eye. She will hurt my body. There's a fear of physical harm. Um, it's where, um, but of course, you know, if we're translating it, we're like, well, it's a widow, so obviously he's just afraid of how annoying she is, and we translate it accordingly, which is wild, because the Greek word is not that. Um, so, he's afraid of her, and the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? Question? Some of you, if we slowed down long enough here, you'd say, yeah, yes? Right? It's a lot of injustice, a lot of prayers. I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man or the human one comes, will he find faith on earth? Well, there are some very interesting things going. We'll keep this slide up for a moment. Um, notice a few things. One, Nowhere in here does it say that this widow is destitute, desperate, poor, or vulnerable. Now, we can surmise in the ancient world that widows and orphans, like they're written together a lot in the Old Test Testament and the New. These are vulnerable folks. Uh, she might not like own a lot of land or a lot of property or have a lot of like clout in the justice system. But we don't know that. She very well might. There were wealthy widows in the Roman world, and the judge eventually is afraid of her. So we don't know. Just because you live in a patriarchal system doesn't mean you're weak. So there's a widow. We don't know that she's weak or destitute. She might be. Um, also, it says here that she wants justice, though the Greek word is vengeance. Um, it's not justice, but what do we do with a woman who wants vengeance, uh, you know, in the mouth of a, of a savior who talks about loving your enemies? <laughs> 
which switch it to justice, <laughs> moving on, <laughs> no more problem, <laughs> nothing to see here. Um, she wants vengeance, she wants it bad. Um, she doesn't take no for an answer. This widow does not respect the governing authorities. That's in there. She won't stop for nothing or no one. She is tenacious, she is relentless, she is ruthlessly determined, and she will stop at nothing apparently because this great judge is afraid of what she will do to him, and eventually she changes his mind. This widow is not to be messed with. I don't, want to I don't want this widow to be mad at me. Um, if I'm the victim of injustice, do I want this widow to go on my behalf? Yes. This is a powerful woman. All right. Now, I'm just going to, you can go to the next slide. Did you know that like powerful widows are a pretty big theme all throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament? Um, my favorite powerful widow story is in Genesis 38, a woman named Tamar. Um, she marries Judah, the great Judah, like the, you know, Judah, the like, Jesus' forefather, Judah, the son of Israel, um, Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar. Um, she marries Judah's son, and then the son dies. Um, and then as like uh, ancient Israelite le legal practice would be is that uh, Judah would have to um, kind of give her in marriage to her husband's next brother so that you know her father's and her dead husband's inheritance would still go on and be kept in the family. Um, so she marries um, a brother of her husband who died, and then he died, and there was no third son that was old enough for marriage, so Judah was like, just go live in your father's house as a widow until my son grows up, and she waited and waited, and guess what? The son grew up, and he wasn't given to her in marriage, so a great injustice uh, was enacted against her. So she's not going to just sit idly by and let injustice go by unchecked, so she goes to where she knows Judah, her father-in-law, will be, disguises herself as a sex worker. No commentary whatsoever on the, you know, righteousness of his decision to, like, pay for her services. Um, he can't pay her. He doesn't even have money. She's like, that's fine. I'll take your cloak and your rod and some personal belongings of yours as a, as a, a loan, you know, what do you call it? Uh, yeah. A, a collateral. Yeah. So then she gets pregnant, and then it comes out, oh no, this woman who's not married is pregnant. And Judah's like, well, obviously we have to follow the law, because Judah respects the law sometimes, and says, well, we should bring her out and execute her because she's broken the law, and according to our law, she needs to be executed because she's pregnant and she's not married. And then uh, the law also says that the man who impregnates her should be executed, so Judah's like, Tamar's like, great, well, in that case, you can execute me, and the father of my baby, here's his cloak, here's his rod. <laughs> and then Judah... <laughs> falls on his knees before her and says to this widow sex worker, she is more righteous than I. And she gives birth to two sons, uh, one of whom is in Jesus' genealogy. Don't cross a widow. Ruth and Naomi are widows. The whole story is not a love story about Ruth and Boaz. Boaz had tons of wives, tons of wives. He's a wealthy man. He's like, you want to be my wife? You want to be my wife? Got tons. Um, but Ruth and Naomi know that uh, in their desperation, in their poverty, in their hunger, there's only one way to survive. And so Ruth takes off her morning clothes, puts on some nice clothes, and sneaks into Boaz's bed in the night and uncovers his feet. And then next thing you know, she's got a husband. <laughs> so uh, when there's a vulnerable widow in the biblical story, she gets it done. <laughs> Justice is hers. Um, even in Luke's writing, there's widows all throughout Luke's gospel. Um, Anna, the prophetess, I won't go into it, but there's a beautiful story in Acts 9 where a widow named Tabitha dies. And everyone's grieving. All the widows of the town are grieving because Tabitha, the widow, used to care for the poor. 
Who's going to care for the poor now without the widow? Who's going to advocate for justice? Who's going to stand day and night for 874 days if not the widow? They cry and weep and they demand Peter bring her back to life. And he does. And when she is brought back to life in Acts 9, he presents her to the widows. Um, the first big drama in the book of Acts is the Greek widows and the Gentile widows. The problem ah, Timothy faces in, in, in First and Second Timothy is too many widows. Um, so widows in the Old Testament um, can be obviously very vulnerable, very marginalized, but they are also the ones most fearless in the face of injustice and willing to take the greatest risks to protect those they love. So, the widow, interesting. You can go back um, to, uh, no, this is fine, this is great, stay at this picture. Um, the judge, the judge in the parable, it says he fears no one. And if you think about it for a moment, it, that's kind of the point of being a judge, right? You're supposed to be impartial. A good judge is not like, well, uh, is he Republican or Democrat? <laughs> None of your business, what's right and good. You're actually supposed to fear no one if you're a judge. An impartial judge is the best judge that doesn't judge you because you might have like tattoos on your face or judge you because you have white skin. Um, he actually just executes justice based on uh, the, the case itself. So there's this interesting thing that Jesus might be doing here of like, here's a judge that feared no one, good. He also doesn't fear God, though. That's a problem, I think. I mean, you don't want a judge who's, like, going to give preferential treatment to Christians in court, right? So I don't know. Like, this judge is interesting. He fears no one. He's impartial. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't fear any humans. Um, and so you're like, oh, what a, what a wicked, awful man. Like, kind of, yeah. Um, although it's interesting that two times in the parable it says the judge fears no one, except if you notice how it ends, the judge is like, but I better give this widow what she wants in case she beats me up. It's like, turns out he fears one person. He fears the widow. She doesn't fear him. <laughs> but he fears her. Um, she doesn't take no for an answer. Uh, it seems that the widow and the judge are equally matched. Here's a very powerful man that doesn't give a rip about anybody. And here's a very uh, a wronged woman who also doesn't give a rip about anybody. Uh, in Luke 20, actually, I think this is a really beautiful thing Jesus says in Luke 20 that might help us read this parable. Um, so Luke 20, so this is only two chapters later in Luke's gospel, um, it says uh, in verse 47, um, nope, 45, come on, Caleb. Oh, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So Jesus is like, be careful, these powerful men with long prayers. That's weird, that should be weird, right, with long prayers, because sometimes, if you go back to the Luke 18 text, uh, Glennon and Jolene, you have this like, um, you must pray always and not lose heart, so you must pray always to God. And then interesting, later on, two chapters later, Jesus is like, woe to those scribes who walk around with their long prayers. It's like, so sometimes long prayers are good, and sometimes Jesus calls BS, right? Can I say that? It's an acronym, it's allowed, okay. Um, so long prayers, is it just pray long and then God will do what you want? That can't be it. That can't be it here. So um, also, I just want to say, like, doesn't this bother you, this parable? Are we allowed to just be honest about how sometimes scripture bothers us? Um, this, like, God will quickly give justice to those who cry to him day and night? 
wait a minute. So is that is that the God that we worship? God is this, you know, even more impartial judge that sits way up above everyone looking down. He's like, how badly do you want it? Would you stay awake and keep praying? Hmm. Would you even skip the movie you were invited? Whatever. I don't know. Like, like, like God's waiting to test you to see how badly you want justice. Meanwhile, like people are being killed. People are going missing. Uh, people are being... Tr- trafficked, people are being beaten to death, people are incarcerated for having marijuana 20 years ago and it's now legal in the states. And God's like, well, if you pray harder, it's kind of like, this is where those Facebook posts that were really popular a decade ago that were like, one like equals one prayer, (laughs) right? For the like, the little boy waiting for heart surgery in the hospital. It's like, oh, you gotta like it. And then Jesus is like, Jesus is there in the operating room, like following Facebook, like you only got 20,000 likes, those are rookie numbers. Mrs. Little Boy's on the operating table, And you're in there like liking the post because if we get more likes, Jesus says, am I being too um, honest? (laughs) Like we hate that theology, right? You've sat by enough situations of pain and suffering and cried and cried and cried and cried. And it seemed like God didn't do anything. And, And I don't know if the solution is, well, I mustn't have prayed hard enough. So I kinda, when I read this, I wrestle, I wanna slow down and be like, so is God this judge? And wouldn't you like this more if the judge was like, you know what, I I revisited the case, and it turns out the good and right thing is to give this widow justice, therefore I will grant her justice because I'm a good judge. No, he's not motivated by what's good and right. He's not motivated by compassion. He's sick of her uh, sort of standing up for her case and, and, and bothering him and threatening him. I hope God's not motivated by that. I really hope we don't have a God that's like, Wow, I did not expect 4,000 people to be on your prayer chain. Holy, all right, go away. Here you go. That can't be it, right? That can't be it. We're allowed to say that. I think we could just say that over and over until we find the tears to just grieve. Um, the, the, The sense sometimes that our prayers have been unanswered. So who is God in this parable? Is God the judge? I find it hard because in Luke's gospel, um, Jesus refuses to be a judge when he's asked to judge in situations. Um, In the Sermon on the Mount, he's like, woe to you who judge. Jesus doesn't, you know, God doesn't seem to be a a judge in Luke's gospel. In fact, the judge who grants her vengeance uh, in Luke's gospel, God's pretty clearly presented as someone who's like, no, love your enemies. (laughs) I say to them, I say to you, feed them, care for them, love them. So the theology that God's testing you, how badly do you want it, uh, I don't think we can um, just put that in here and then walk away. Um, God is not this all-powerful judge in Luke's gospel. God is on the cross. (laughs) Caesar, Pilate, Herod, they're more of the judges in Luke's gospel. Um, so I have a hard time accepting that. So, so the three questions I want to talk about is, oh, where's God in this parable? Uh, where are you in this parable? Uh, and who is the widow in this parable? So uh, what do we do? I, I, I'm not this widow. I've never in my life um, been wronged in such a way that I stood up to the point of turning the whole flow of the justice system towards me. I've never. I've shared things on Facebook and Instagram that felt risky. I have. It was scary. And I was like, all right. And well, now what are you going to do? Obviously fix the problem. But I've never, I've never actually even really been to a protest in my life. Marched. I've never risked, uh, taken big risks for the cause of justice. So I'm careful to say I'm the widow. I'm not. Um, Who's the widow? Who's the judge? Where's God? Where are we? 
So I just want to say, um, hey, let's not rush in to hate the judge. I mean, he's unjust. He doesn't fear God. But if you rush in to hate the judge and be like, wow, this guy's a real jerk, it just makes it more complicated when you're like, and so is God, like this judge, will finally grant you justice if you beg him hard enough. So I don't think Jesus is telling us to rush in and just say the judge is bad. I also don't think we need to rush in and rescue the widow. She's the one who gets what she wants. <laughs> she threatens the judge. She stops at nothing. So let's not, uh, let's not uh, immediately read a gender stereotype into this, and let's not immediately dismantle one either. We can slow down and think maybe Jesus, the trickster, is doing something more. So notice yourself noticing the parable. What do you see? What do you like? What comforts you? What challenges you? What do you wish wasn't there? What about your own life story do you wish lined up more with the way you want to read this parable? Christina Cleveland, um, a public theologian, a poet, um, a really uh, important voice in the church, I think, in 2022. Um, she recently published a book called God is a Black Woman, and she's gone on pilgrimages um, to visit the Black Madonnas all throughout Europe. Um, it's really profound. And she wrote a little article, and I got Anna to photocopy 10 of them because I'm also a professor, uh, and there's 10 articles in the back that you will never be tested on or have to write a paper on, but if you read it, it could shift something in you for the good of this whole neighborhood, so you should read it. Um, it's called The Privilege of Hopelessness. The Privilege of Hopelessness. Um, it begins, uh, the quote, despair is the luxury of the bourgeoisie, a quote overheard in a Palestinian refugee camp. It says, if you have a child at your breast who's starving to death, you don't get the privilege of just being overwhelmed by the size of the problem. You'll walk through the night in bare feet on broken glass if you think there's milk for your baby on the other side of that desert, will you not? Hopelessness, overwhelm, despair, she writes, is a, is a privilege that not everybody has. You, you might read in the news, oh, the dysfunctional politics, Yikes, I don't even know. Do we like Trudeau? Do we hate? I don't know. And then I'm overwhelmed. Don't care. Endemic racism. I don't know. What am I supposed to do? I can't fix it. Um, unbalanced distribution of wealth in the world. I mean, I'll tell you what, Jeff Bezos doesn't work harder than me, but I don't know. I don't know. Like, you just get overwhelmed. Climate change. I could have ridden my bike here today, but I did not. Um, poverty human trafficking, murdered and missing indigenous women and girls in Canada. I, I get hopeless. I despair. I kind of don't care. I kind of keep scrolling, right? But I, I, I like, especially when it comes to like murdered and missing um, indigenous women and girls, my neighbor here in Bonesse, um, their daughter went missing a couple years ago and, and they actually found her body after like almost a year of searching. And the national search, like I was following, I was definitely sharing those Instagrams and, and Twitters. Um, it was devastating because it was like the closest thing I've ever been, the closest I've ever been to someone who's had a missing child. And it's wild to me because I'm like, if it were my daughter that were missing, <laughs> I don't know. Would you eat? Would you sleep? Would you rest? Would you ever watch a show again? Would you log on to Facebook again? Like if it was your child, how hard would you fight to find her and to find out who took her and who hurt her? How hard would you fight? Sometimes it's hard to get involved unless it's you uh, who's affected by the situation. So this is why Christina Cleveland talks about the privilege of hopelessness is, well, the privilege is that it's not my daughter. It's not my, you know, the climate change isn't affecting me in Calgary. Um, poverty, human trafficking, I've never been hungry. 
I learned a few weeks ago, um, so the fridge, we awakened a year ago, you all know, we built that shelter, fridge, freezer, cupboard, trying to keep it full for everybody hungry in Bowness. It's hard to keep it full. It's empty at least three times a day, and sometimes it sits there empty for a couple days. And I feel sort of guilty about it, but I don't bring food to it that often. I forget, or I leave it in my car and it goes rotten. <laughs> <laughs> I did that. It was milk. I was like, oh, shoot. It was 30 degrees. My bad. Um, but I learned that there's a man who lives in Bowness. Some of you know him. Um, he has a foster daughter that he has been in his life, um, him and his wife's life, for, for many, many years. Um, and this uh, foster daughter of his uh, kind of goes in and out of homelessness. And he told me uh, a story a few weeks ago of um, visiting. He knows where all the like tent encampments in Calgary are. There's a few. So if you've never seen one, which I never have, that's a part of our privilege. You've never lived in a tent in the city. There's a few. There's one right by Montgomery that has over 100 tents in it. Um, the police often raid it and break it up. There was a grass fire recently in Calgary, kind of caused or started by that encampment. Um, and this dad in Bonas said he has spent many nights of his life in the last five years kind of knocking on the tents looking for his daughter. And he brings a little bit of food every single day and puts it in the common cupboard because he doesn't know if his daughter's getting food or not. And he knows that she knows about it. So it might be a muffin, a granola bar. He brings food every single day because someone he loves is hungry in Calgary and he doesn't know where she is. Colton Bushy, I mentioned him at the beginning of the service, shot August 9th. His mother, named Debbie Baptiste, is still fighting. Still fighting. Um, he, uh, he was shot in 2016. Uh, so six years, she's still standing outside the court, she's still appealing, she's still marching, she's still trying to raise money, she's still bothering that judge. She's not giving up, Her sister, uh, his sister, Colton's sister's not giving up. Um, oh, you can go back to Colton, this is another story in a minute. Um, uh, because of all of the work that she's done, um, there's a documentary that's come out this year um, but uh, this, this woman, Debbie Baptiste, is desperately trying to bring awareness to the problem in Canada. Um, she's working around the clock, and I think the longer time goes on, the fewer and fewer people stand with her. But the woman, Debbie Baptiste, is not taking no for an answer. In 2014, um, the next picture, this one, all the kids have left, right? This one always um, kind of breaks my heart. 2014, August 17th, so another anniversary um, this year. Tina Fontaine, 15 years old, 90 pounds. Um, like 90 pounds should shock you. I don't know, 90 pounds is small, like as a 40 pounds smaller than me. This is a little child, 15 years old. Her body was pulled uh, from the Red River in Winnipeg. Her body was wrapped in plastic and a duvet cover. Uh, Raymond Cormier, uh, a 53-year-old man, was the primary suspect in this case. Um, he confessed uh, to an undercover cop to um, having sex with this girl, or because she's 15, as we would say, um, raping her or sexually exploiting her. Um, he was she's the, he's the last person she was seen with, uh, and witnesses who had been in his house all said that the duvet cover that her body was found wrapped in is the duvet cover that was on his bed. But he was fully acquitted, and the RCMP moved Tina Fontaine's case to the cold files. But Tina has a mom named Tina Duck. And since 2014, she has not rested. She has not stopped. She's continued to fight, to grieve, to protest, to demand justice for her baby girl. And thanks to the relentless and tenacious work of Tina Duck, 
Um, a few things have started in Canada. A Drag the Red initiative, which is a, a funding for um, uh, search and rescue teams to regularly drag the Red River looking for the remains of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. The reemergence of the Bear Clan Patrol in Canada is a result of the work of Tina Duck. The Bear Clan Patrol helps us keep the common cupboard full here in Bowness. Um, because of the work of Tina Duck, uh, changes to Manitoba's child and welfare uh, system have been implemented, and there's been an increased push for nat national inquiry into murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. Uh, the Crown prosecutor has decided that they will not appeal the case, uh, and Raymond Cormier is out there living his life. But her mother knows, someone knows who did this to my baby. And did you know Tina Duck is a widow? Tina Duck's husband and Tina Fontaine's father was beaten to death in 2011 when Tina was only 11 years old. And his killers have never been charged and never been found. This widow in our parable is not just an imaginary person from the past. So we'll read it one more time. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice, so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? So, in this parable, there's something interesting, I think, about immediately saying God is the judge. I know it says, listen to the judge. And then we have God granting judge justice, which is something that you would expect a judge to do. But we don't, we don't read anything in the gospel that suggests God is a cold, impartial judge. In fact, we know that God, the God who's presented as a judge in the Old Testament gives preferential treatment to the poor and the marginalized. Um, God is not impartial. He likes the Hebrew slaves more than the Egyptians. <laughs> He's partial. I know uh, that, that uh, I'm not the widow in this story. I don't know if any of us are the widow in this story. Um, but the widow in this story is out there right now. She's probably in Boness. She's marching. She's protesting. She's bringing her pain to speech. She's begging police to hear her case. She's trying to get a lawyer. She's not sleeping. And she's not letting anybody else sleep easy. She's out there. She's our neighbor. Interestingly, if you think about it, um, we've kind of built our culture. I'm like, I'm really bad at like politics and economics, so bear with me here. Um, we've kind of done this thing in the West where we imagine like, if it's good for me, it'll be good for everyone. I don't like trickle down economics or something. Like, if it's good for me, it'll eventually be good for you too. So it's okay if I put all my time and energy and priorities into me and my family, because if we're having a good time, eventually all that goodness will overflow into you. So if it's good for me, eventually it'll be good for you. And it's kind of how we've built uh, the West. If it's good for the city, well, it'll eventually be good for the forest. <laughs> but if you think about the work of the widow, she's not just working for her, is she? Um, what's good for the widow would be good for all of us. So let's flip that. What's good for the widow would be good for everyone. If Tamika Palmer gets her way, that's good news for every black person in the United States of America.
What's good for Tamika Palmer is good for everyone. What's good for Debbie Baptiste is good for every indigenous boy in all of Canada. What's good for Tina Duck is good for everyone in Canada. That she is fighting for us. She's standing and making that judge uncomfortable for us. And sometimes she does it alone. And so the widow in this story is Tamika Palmer. The widow in this story is Debbie Baptiste. It's Tina Duck. Um, it's the man in Bonesse whose daughter is homeless and he doesn't know if she has food. Um, yeah, that's Tina Duck, uh, Tina Fontaine's mom. In this parable, the one thing I want to comment on before um, bringing us to the communion table is that there's this theme of prayer. Um, if you just flip back to the text, I won't read it, but at the very beginning, the line is, um, Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray. And then in verse 7 there, you have, um, won't he grant justice if we cry day and night? So there surely there must be a thing about like prayer. Prayer is important. Um, I don't think we can read anything in this parable, though, that's like, you know, leave that judge alone. Stop protesting. Stop sharing risky posts on Instagram. Stop hashtagging Black Lives Matter. Like, stop causing all this drama. Just go home and pray. Just pray. We could have an all-night prayer vigil. We could have a fast and a prayer. But don't get involved in politics. Just pray. That's not it. Yes, it's a parable about the need to pray. But nowhere in here is the widow alone in her prayer closet just praying, 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 praying. She is bothering the judge until he is afraid for his own safety. <laughs> and that's the prayer. That's the prayer. Prayer is not just telling God what you need and then saying it over and over and over until you wear God out and God says, fine. That's not prayer. Prayer is tuning into the heart of God. Prayer is joining a conversation that's already happening. Paul says the Holy Spirit is within you crying out at all times, Abba Father. You're tapping into a conversation that's already happening. You're tuning into a heart of God that beats and bleeds. Prayer is joining a conversation. It's paying attention to a conversation that's already happening. Prayer is tuning into the movement of the Spirit here and now. Christina Cleveland has a quote. She says, only converted people, I like that, you know, evangelicals, converts, converted people, that's important. She says, only converted people. And by converted people, she says, are people who are in union both with the pain of the world and the love of God. That's a convert. You are aligned and in tune with the pain of the world and the love of God. And as those come together in your heart, you're a convert. And she says, only converted people, people who are in union both with the pain of the world and the love of God, are prepared to read the Bible with the right pair of eyes and the appropriate bias, which is from the side of powerlessness and suffering, not the side of power and control. So can we hear the widow? Where is she in our streets, and will we go and stand with her? Where is Jesus in this story? Jesus says um, in Matthew's gospel, whatever you do to the least of these, you've done to me. Whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. So where is Jesus in this parable? Well, I would say in August of 2016, he was shot in the head while sleeping in a truck. I would say his 90-pound body was pulled from the Red River. 
I would say 37 bullets were released in her apartment and six of them hit her and killed her. I would say um, Jesus in this parable uh, was beaten to death <laughs> in 2011. Where is Jesus? Jesus is one of the 2.3 million faceless incarcerated men in the USA. And who is the widow? As we've said, Tamika Palmer, Debbie Baptiste, Tina Duck. What about Mother Mary? A lot of scholars argue confidently that Mary was a widow. Joseph's not mentioned in the Gospels. He probably died when Jesus was very young. Mary's the widow in the story, maybe. Maybe that's the justice. Maybe she's knocking down Pilate's door, Herod's door, because we know that that widow, Mother Mary, her son, was unfairly tried, an illegal trial in the middle of the night, and then uh, executed, even though the judge, uh, the executioner, or uh, not the executioner, the judge, said three times, this man is innocent. Maybe it's Mary demanding justice for the blood of her son, her innocent son, who was tried and hung as a, between two criminals. Who is God in the story? I don't think we're reading this, that God is a stern judge. I don't think God is a police officer. I don't think God is the king of an all-powerful empire, as revealed in scripture. He's not an angry principal determining if you pass or if you get expelled. I think what the Bible teaches us is that God looks like Jesus, that God is recklessly on the side of love and goodness, mercy and reconciliation, which means the hope we have as followers of the resurrected Jesus is that one day we know exactly whose duvet Tina Fontaine's body was wrapped in. We know exactly who beat Tina's dad to death in 2011. We know that all guns will be melted into gardening tools one day. There will be no need for locks on doors. There will be no hungry bellies. We know that. We know that for a fact. We know that with certainty. That's, that's our faith. That's our hope, is that life gets the final say, not death. So why not go stand with the widow outside the judge's door? There's no reason not to. There are missing indigenous women and girls in Canada. Well, God knows where they are. Their blood cries out to God from the soil. We know that. So let's go find them. Let's go march with the mothers, with the grandmothers, with the, with the children uh, looking for their loved one. So let's pray. Maybe this didn't resolve the parable in our minds. I'm not sure. It's still a challenging text. But I would say the widow <laughs> is a woman who knows what's right and knows what it, she wants, knows what she needs, and she will not let anybody rest until she gets it, and she gets it. She gets it. And so what are we called to in Bonas? Let, let's pray together, and then we'll go to the communion table. Oh God, creator of heavens and earth, who knit Tina Fontaine together in her mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made, May we be woken up. May you clean our ears to hear the cries of the widows in our midst. May you unyoke us from our worldly possessions and concerns that we would stand for the cause of Christ and march alongside the crucified peoples of this world. May you align our hearts to those who have not known the luxury of despair. And would you bring us humbly to the tables of those in our neighborhood who've heard you say, 
When the world hates you, remember it hated me first. We pray as awakeners in the name of the crucified Christ, in the name of the risen Messiah, Jesus. Amen. So um, at the communion table, I'm actually going to um, just show uh, like a 90-second clip from Christina Cleveland, um, the woman I've referred to whose article I have in the back here. But um, I thought it'd be a really profound thing for a moment is um, the widow is not named in the story. And I think that's powerful. So what if um, we could just close our eyes for a moment and imagine giving her a name, any name. If you know someone in your life who's fought the courts, who's tried to raise money to advocate for justice, in your heart, you can say it out loud if you want, or in your heart, say the name. Let's name the widow. If you've lost someone um, to injustice, maybe that's what this widow is standing up for. In your heart, name the person that you've lost. Name the person you know, uh, who, who, whose, whose life it seems... Um, means nothing. Name the person that this widow is uh, begging for justice on behalf of. And so instead of put ourselves in the story, we put the crucified peoples of this world in the story. In uh, Hebrews 13.3, I'll just say this and then we'll watch the video and come take communion together. Um, Paul writes, or whoops, the preacher writes, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are being oppressed as if you yourselves were being oppressed. So this is Christina Cleveland talking about the cross. This message, this message of unity is for people who have been hurt by the church, right? I mean, if you, if you haven't seen any of the divisions in the church, you won't even feel compelled for unity. I mean, the people who are most resistant to this message, which is a difficult message, it's a message, um, it's, unity? it's saying, the message of unity. Are you saying the church is not unified? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, that is what I, I thought. I thought the cross unified the church. Um, that, yeah, that well, that's the thing is we don't have we don't really pay attention to the real cross. We don't pay attention to the cross that was actually um, a symbol of, um, I guess, a fight against power, a fight against some people being oppressed and other people being privileged. We think of the cross as like a cute little ornament, like a token of God's love. But God's love was violent, and God's love was just, and God's love was sacrificial. And so, you know, when I talk about unity with people, it's, um, it doesn't go over well with people who have been um, coached into thinking that faith is all about the warm and fuzzies for me, because the cross is the epicenter of, of really, of unity, universal unity, and um, people don't realize that people at crosses die. <laughs> and so we can't really think about that symbol yeah, without, yeah, it's hard to sell. You can sell one I think you can, yeah, you can kind of sell it to people who are ready to go down that road. So, I mean, Jesus sold it to, to his disciples and to the early church. 
And so, but I've, I've found, you know, I was speaking at a conference two years ago at a large mega church, and uh, the first the first year I spoke at it, it was kind of like a, a warm and fuzzy, like let's all grow in our faith conference. And then the next year, they wanted to do something on unity, and they said, well, you just wrote this book, so you should come back and talk about unity this time. And that even though it's like a 12,000 member church, the conference attendance went down by like 2,000 people because people loved like, yay, Jesus, make me feel good about myself and like heal my self-esteem. But when you're calling people to die, not a lot of people are really interested in it. It was actually their lowest attending conference in the history of this megachurch. Come and die. Yeah, pretty Saturday. much. I mean, Very yeah, good. you know. And so you, what you saw at that church was the more, the more spiritually mature people, like the people who were like, no, Christian faith is about sacrifice. Christian faith is about seeing, asking God to help me see the way that He sees, He, he sees things.